There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Welcome to HBCU 468, brought to you by ESPN's The Undefeated. This weekly podcast looks at life inside and outside of sports from the unique perspective of the Roden Fellows. Handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows. I'm Mania Shabazz from Grambling State University in Grambling, Louisiana. And I'm Isaiah Smalls from Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. It's been two weeks since the President of the United States cursed NFL players who knelt during the national anthem and suggested that they be fired. Several owners, including the Jets' Chris Johnson, linked armed in solidarity with players in response to the president. Though the major headlines of the week have moved on to the Major League Baseball playoffs and Cam Newton, the debate and impact of the protest is far from over. We're joined today by Jets linebacker Demario Davis. He's on the line to give us an inside look on how the Jets and how NFL players are handling the issue. Hey, Demario, welcome to the show, man. Glad to have you here. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure, man. I know, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff to do, man. You got, you got young children. You got games to win. But uh, what have these last two or three weeks been like for you? Well, yeah, these, these past two weeks have been a little bit different than anything that I've seen uh, inside my career. I guess there's always a lot going on in the country, but the way it has brought itself to the front door of the NFL have been um, unique. So many of my relatives and friends, you know, have been messaging me, you know, what are you guys going to do, mm-hmm. especially after the president made a statement, what are you going to do? Uh, you guys definitely have to do something now. you got to have some type of protest. And my teammates, you know, have similar stories. All those guys talking about, man, my, my DMs are full of messages. Hmm. Uh, we're just referring to social media messages they've been getting. I uh, just feel like a lot of pressure, on, on, I guess, on both ends. And so, you know, a lot of times you just want to focus on the game and play football where it just kind of felt like a situation where it's like, you know, at this point, you can't just sit still and be silent. Something has to happen because it's, it's it's at our doorstep. And I think that was just kind of felt a lot of guys, you know, handling in different ways. But I, I do think there has been a, a serious unification of the league all coming together from the owners to and the players just saying, you know, we're not going to stand for anyone on the outside, you know, kind of calling us out. Mm-hmm. What do you think the tipping point was? Was it Trump in Huntsville, Alabama? How did that affect you personally? And do you think that's what pushed a lot of the owners and players together? Yeah, I think so, because it was an attack on, on two ends. One, you were calling players uh, sons of bees, you know, which is an attack on players and their mama. Then uh, I think it was he could have been talking to a certain type of player at that. And so that was definitely a rallying cry from the player's perspective. But then uh, it's also an attack on the owners because you're saying, you know, owners, you don't have control of your players. You know, you don't have your players on a leash. Hmm. You know, our locker room is diverse, and it was unique to see so many players come together around and say, hey, uh, we need to stand up for this. This isn't right. What he's talking is not how we feel. Hmm. And our owner, Chris Johnson, came to the locker room and that he wanted to lock arms with us. 
and he asked every player individually if, if we minded him locking arms and, and went and told us that he totally disagrees with that statement, mm. which gained a lot of respect in, inside our locker room. So it ultimately worked for the good on our part because it brought us all together as owners and players. You, you told me uh, last week uh, about a, a, a kind of unique meeting. Uh, you drove down to D.C., I think it was last week, some players and some owners. Could you tell me about that meeting? Because I thought it was pretty fascinating. Yeah, so uh, there were actually two meetings that happened. I was a part of the second one. Um, it was a month with, with players some staff from the NFL, PA, and, 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 you know, a few owners and the commissioner. Pretty much it was just saying, okay, what's the next step? You know, what do we need to do? Because with all these protests and all that's going on, the message is, is very much being taken the wrong way and uh, with some people you know protesting by kneeling some people protesting by you know linking arms the way it can it comes across is you know these guys are protesting against the country like they don't like america that you know they're disrespecting our military by kneeling during the pledge of allegiance you know when it when it's totally not that you know it's, it's you know america has some problems and we want to make it a better america is i think ultimately the message that it's being Dead, but it's not necessarily being portrayed or received that way. And so the NFL is getting a lot of uh, attack, you know, um, from military families. But you've even seen players who, who kneeled uh, before uh, the Star Spangled Banner, and they were booed too. And so uh, players are, I think, trying to just send that message that it's not about that in, in the NFL. So, you know, the owners are trying to figure out, you know, what do we need to do to send the proper messaging at the same time protect our game mm. you know because the game is a great platform you know it works for the players and it works for the owners uh we're trying to send a proper message you know to the country that our country needs you know has a problem with racism and socially uh inequality and we need to work on these things and so though we want to send that message we need to be able to send it in the right way there was what there was craft in the meeting uh, and uh rooney right they were concerned fans were bringing back jerseys and they were really. It seemed like they were really concerned. Yeah, I think the kneeling is the biggest problem that people are having with the messaging. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what all the hysteria is about. Even if you go back to Kaepernick, you know, when he took a knee, it was not about the issues that he's trying to bring awareness to it. But it's like, should he kneel during the anthem or should he not kneel during the anthem? Mm-hmm. And that's what's been become uh, the center of messaging. And our and our goal uh, as players and owners is to change the messaging that it's not we do not hate our country, we love our country, we just want to make our country better. You know, we're at a point where I believe the message has been heard, you know, people are listening, people are paying attention, and now it's just trying to figure out what what the necessary next step is, but at the same time understanding that, you know, attack on one of us is attack on all of us. So Mm. we need to make sure that we don't let this divide us. I know that you you and your teammates have had discussions of leadership. What would be the next step? I know that... There was a 10-page memo sent to Roger Goodell and Troy Vincent requesting league support for community activism and criminal justice reform. And what do you think are some, some next steps? First of all, I, I think it needs to be understood that this is not something that's going to be solved overnight. Mm-hmm. It's going to be an ongoing conversation. Uh, secondly, I think the next step is to make sure that players and owners are on the same page of getting stuff done. And that's not going to necessarily be easy. Uh, because when you involve so many people with you know so many different backgrounds, so many different feelings, trying to be on the same page, but it's important to protect the game, protect the brand, so that we can continue to have this huge platform and have this huge outreach and be able to do the things that we want to do 
in a positive manner. And so that's going to take solidarity and just everybody communicating effectively on, on all 32 teams, the top of the chain to the bottom of the chain. But I, I, I do believe that the owners in the NFL PA are working together to figure out how can we facilitate this change, what can we do. Some of the things that we talked about is uh, putting signs up in the stadium that bring awareness to uh, racism, to social equality, kind of taken from European soccer uh, where they have had a lot of racist problems in the past, a racist chance in the stadium where they put signs up, you know, racism not allowed here. You know, it just kind of helps in the messaging, you know, talking about doing video spots, commercials, using the media platform the same way we kind of did around domestic violence, uh, maybe having a social equality awareness month, kind of how we do with cancer, breast cancer awareness month, doing some things around, you know, our military appreciation, just letting the military know that, you know, we support them, uh, we support our country even more, you know, just around that. And just so just some different things we can do on a mass scale, but also on the local level, being able to use the team's platform, the owners, uh, their resources and connections in the community to to help, you know, get in front of legislation, you know, help, you know, get certain uh, laws changed or passed, help, you know, help urban communities, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that players or necessarily the, the NFL in general didn't ask for, but it was, ended up on his doorstep. It probably was on his way before this, but directly happened when the president made those comments. And so we just have to make sure that we respond to it right. Mm-hmm. Our guest is Demario Davis, veteran linebacker for the New York Jets and one of the most insightful and uh, outspoken leaders in, in the league. Demario, before we let you go, we talk about next steps. What about bringing back Colin Kaepernick? I mean, I think that was one of the sore spots, the fact that he's been blackballed, at least, you know, that's from my perspective, at least. Uh, what, what about what type of gesture would it be for one of the 32 owners to step up and sign Kaepernick? Do you think that that would be a, a, a very sufficient signal to the players uh, of goodwill and good intentions? It could. I, I think that a lot of different players, um, you know, are protesting for a lot of different reasons. Some of them are protesting because they feel like, you know, Captain being blackballed. Some people protest because they feel strongly about the issues, you know, in the community. Some people are just protesting because they want to be part of the movement, you know. So it's a lot of people protesting for a lot of different, different reasons. I don't know if that would be, you know, an olive branch or, or, or would bring some peace to it. You know, maybe for some, some people may feel like, you know, they sign cap, you know, you know, no need to say anything else. Let's just go back to playing football. Um, but some people may not feel that way. I don't know. I can't speak on that. How, that, how did you? How, how would you feel? Of, if, if Cap was signed, yeah, he should be playing in his league. He has the ability. But as far as that being a peace offering or, or, or whatnot, <laughs> that's not necessarily. I think it's, I think there's bigger potatoes that are going on here. My my concern is more about the issues being addressed. You know, mm. I, I do appreciate Cap for standing up for what he believed in, what he saw. You know, I saw those same problems, and I and I gave him huge big ups for the way he went about it. You know, that wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have thought about that if if, if I hadn't saw him. So so he's a a leader and a hero in my book. You know, but I don't think that would move me left or right because the issues would still have to be addressed. I'm more about let's all let us all be on the same page, and just get things done. Hey, listen, listen, to my, I know you got to run, man, but I really appreciate it, man. And uh, uh, we're gonna you know wish you the best. Stay healthy. And as Al Davis said, just win, baby. (laughs) (laughs) 
appreciate you, man. I appreciate you. God bless. Okay, thanks so much. Okay, thanks. Uh, all right. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss our one Puerto Rican native and a former NBA player is dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Stay tuned. If you're just now tuning in, you're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Mania Shabazz of Grambling State University and Isaiah Smalls of Morehouse. And we're going to switch gears uh, from the anthem protest to Puerto Rico. Uh, As you know, in late September, Hurricane Maria pounded the island with destructive wind, rain, and tornadoes. The storm lasted almost 30 hours and left most of the island without access to electricity and clean water. In the world of sports, the Puerto Rico tip-off had to be moved to South Carolina. Uh, Major League Baseball has donated $1 million to help relief efforts, and several Major League Baseball players, including Carlos Beltran and Carlos Correa, are sending supplies and donating money. Uh, We've got on the line a really, really special guest with us today, uh, Alfred Butchley. It was the first Puerto Rican player drafted into the NBA. Butch lives on the island, and he's working feverishly to uh, not only keep his sign business up and running, uh, but he's been actually raising money and really helping uh, the community. Hey, Butch, thanks so much, man, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. How you doing, Bill, and thanks for having me. Oh, man, it's, it's a pleasure. And again, man, what's it? it looks bad enough on television, but what's, what's it been like these last couple of weeks? No, it's been really crazy. You know, and I tell you, it started from the, the first night of the hurricane. You know, I actually stayed in my business because it's almost like a bunker. You know, we have all the uh, steel uh, shutters and everything like that. So we, we, were, we were pretty tight in there, my wife, Rachel, and my son, Brandon. And uh, really the noise was the, was the first thing that, that's going to get your attention, you know, just the winds and how it has the aluminum rattling and the doors shaking. You know, it was, a, it was a tough situation starting off. It just got even worse, you know, when you see some of the places around the island, you know, it's really sad to see some of the, uh, some of the destruction that, that the hurricane did. I just want to tell everybody, Butch is joining us from San Juan, where he's, he's in his car in San Juan, and so uh, really appreciate uh, the effort. You, you and your family were in Puerto Rico during the hurricane. How, how did you guys survive it, and, and uh, how much damage did you did you suffer? Well, my business, I really didn't have that much damage. You know, I have uh, some garage doors where we actually do vehicle graphics in the garage, and it, it actually blew my doors wide open during the storm. So the doors were damaged. And then at my home, I have a patio in the back that I, it, it kind of messed up my the aluminum roof over the back patio. And also I have a co- uh, awning in the front that it actually took off my awning and threw it into my neighbor's yard. Mm. But, I, mm. I, you know, I feel I feel blessed because I didn't have nowhere near the damage as, as, as a lot of my neighbors and a lot of the islands. Hi, this is Mania. I just really want to applaud you because even though that you didn't have a lot of damage, I love that you're trying to help out Puerto Rico. 
So nearly 20 NBA players like yourself hail from Puerto Rico. How are you participating to help the relief efforts? And um, do you know any other NBA players that are contributing? Well, I know that uh, Jose Barea, he's doing a couple of things also. I don't know exactly what he's doing, but I started a GoFundMe campaign. You you know, FAMA is here, and they're going to help the people, and the government is going to help with different things. And I I just wanted to to help in the middle. You know, some of the things that the government might not give, I want to get a generator to get my business started running again. I want to get a a few other generators to help some of my neighbors, some of the business people in the area. And I want to get some inverters also because one of the things is in the daytime, you know, we have light half of the day. But in the night you start talking about, you know, you have little kids that that they don't really know what's going on. They're wondering, like, where's the lights? Where's the TV? And I think with some uh, inverters, you could actually hook that up to your car battery and for at least two or three hours at night, you can have a fan going. You can light some lamps. You could even light a TV. So I'm kind of focusing in that area. You know, I cannot help everybody and do everything, but at least I would like to, to kind of fit in, in in that small area if I can. Hi, Mr. Lee. Uh, this is Isaiah Smalls from Morehouse. Uh, first of all, thank you for, you know, being with us today. Uh, I just had a question. I'm sure by now you've seen... Uh, Trump shooting paper towels into the crowd, similar to the way you shot a basketball, you know, in your career. Uh, first question, what did you think of his form? And secondly, what did you think of him actually doing that? You know, for, for me, this is not po- political. You know, we have a tough situation here, and any help that we can get is going to be uh, appreciated. One of the problems we have is that more than half of the island don't even have communication. Even with myself, I'm not too up on the news because I have telephone service. It's like very spotty. You know, people are traveling around, are driving on the highways just trying to get a signal. So it's a little tough situation, and I'm not all that up on what happened when when Mr. Trump was here. I know the president was here on the island, but, you know, we, we need help, and wherever the help can come from, that's what we... That's what we're looking for. You know, what do people really need, and and how could you get them what they really need? Well, you know, that's another tough situation, Bill, because, you know, I'm trying to work on the generators, the inverters, and uh, I've been getting water to people so far. But one of the problems, you know, we have Costco and Sam's here on the island. They only let you get two packs of water per card. So it's even hard to help like that because it's not like I can go and buy like 100 cases of water and give that out to my neighborhood. They sell you two cases at a time. So it's a little tough for the individual guy like me to work. Could people fly into Puerto Rico and bring supplies? Well, I I understand that's happening. You know, I have people from Marquette, the university and sports fans that's been helping and trying to send things. I haven't received anything yet. I know my my sister-in-law, she went to the post office. That was last week, and they wouldn't even let her send anything because of the backup. Hi, this is Mania from Grambling. How much money um, has your GoFundMe account raised so far? I had a goal of $100,000, and I think right now we're about 28000 just under $30,000. This is my first time with, with an account like that. So that even takes a little while for them to verify who you are, verify your status, and even to get the money, you know. So it it takes a little while to get the money. This is like a long situation, 
and in, and in the meantime, people are struggling, but you can only go as fast as you can go. You know, I know the government and a lot of people are helping and trying to do a lot of things. It's just that I hear from the people on the ground that a lot of the products are not getting to the people as fast as they need it or as fast as they would like, which I guess is always the case. Right. Our guest is the great Alfred Butch Lee. And for those people that didn't know, I, mean, I, I want to let them know a little bit about your basketball career you went to Marquette uh, very highly recruited you know you, you were the player of the year in, in the NCAA uh, you were All-American you were two-time All-American you led Marquette in fact I watched it you led Marquette to the final four and to the national championship uh, 1977 when Marquette defeated the University of North Carolina and you were the MVP of the final four you know you, you actually had, and you had a great you know, NBA career uh, so you, you've done a, a lot. One thing I wanted to ask you, and I know Isaiah has been following this. Have you been following the, 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 uh, the AAU scandal over here, you know, that got, that's gotten Rick Pitino uh, suspended and, and uh, some ex- shoe company executives suspended? Have you been following that? No. I, you know, that's, that's, that's the thing. We don't have light, so we don't have Internet. And I'm usually a big-time basketball fan, both the NBA and the NCAA and I have to tell you, I'm not, I'm not up. The other day, I'm a big Russell Westbrook fan, and I didn't even know that Carmelo Anthony is now part of the Thunder. So I'm <laughs> way, way, be, I'm way behind on my, on my sports. Uh, switching gears for a second, the undefeated is celebrating Latinx History Month, also known as Hispanic Heritage Month, from mid-September to mid-October. Latinx is a relatively new term that honors the contributions of Latin American men, women, those that are gender nonconforming. We've been featuring stories about Latinx athletes, past and present. What does this month mean to you and the rest of your family? You know, I was the first Latino to play in the NBA and to do a few things in sports, win a national uh, uh, title in NCAA basketball. And uh, it, it's really like a great honor, you know. Things like that, when you're the first, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old right now, and to be the first, you, usually you think, of my grandfather being the first one to do something, you know. But uh, that's a great honor. I didn't know that was the case while it was happening. When I started playing sports again, that was like for my family, for my friends, really to make my parents proud, you know. And and by doing that, I was able to make my neighborhood proud, uh, uh, New York City proud, then going on to uh, – the university, make the, the Marquette University in the city of Milwaukee proud, you know. I played in the Olympics with Puerto Rico. I was able to play in the in the, in the the BSN, which is Baloncesto Superior Nacional, and to be the first one of the Latinos to get to those high levels, I'm very proud of that, and really that's a proud accomplishment for my family. Was it hard to be taken seriously as a basketball player? Because although, you, like you said, you were the first, and I know that there's a lot of Hispanics in both baseball and soccer, but you know there aren't really many in basketball. Like you said yourself, you were the first. What stereotypes and challenges did you have to overcome? Well, you know, my situation wasn't as difficult because I was born in Puerto Rico, but I grew up in Harlem, New York. I grew up just a couple of blocks from the Rucker Park. So I actually touched and seen a lot of pros growing up from from when I can remember from 11 years old. So I've seen pros. I've seen how they play. I talked with them. So I had a little more confidence as far as basketball. So I was I was growing up in that in that rich basketball tradition 
So I just kind of followed the lead. You know, I, I went to D. with Clinton High School in the Bronx, and I, I think still today that's the high school with the most professional basketball players, Nate Tiny Archibald, Tom Henderson, guys like that, mm-hmm. that made it to the NBA before I did. Okay, so basically me and my friends the other day were talking about what state, you know, is known as the basketball state. Um, back in the day, you know, it was obviously no question it was New York. Uh, people like Kareem, Bernard King, as you mentioned, uh, Tiny Archibald, Chris Mullen, they all originated from New York. But now it seems like it might have shifted a little bit. You know, there are a lot of players coming from the DMV, KD, Rudy Gay, Ty Lawson, or some even say North Carolina with people like Chris Paul and John Wall uh, dominating the league. So, yeah, my question is kind of two parts. Do you think that New York will ever return to being, you know, known as the basketball state? And what will it take for them to return there? Well, it's like most inner cities, you know, that's where you get the top basketball players from. And I think that that's how New York got that reputation in the beginning. A lot of people right now want to say that other cities are number one and they, and they kind of took over from New York. But when you, when you look at the background, you'll see still a lot of those kids actually came from New York. But, but there's so much recruiting going on from the junior high school level even. You know, you have a lot of kids that were born and grew up playing basketball in one area and almost get transplanted by some of the prep schools and some of the recruiting. So I think New York City, having that big population, still have a lot of great basketball players but I guess they kind of move around a little more than they used to because of the prep school and, and, and because of the recruiting now. I have another question. So I know that you mentioned your family and that you have three children, and two of them are in basketball. Are they interested in following your footsteps and playing in the NBA? My oldest son, he's uh, Keith Lee, lives with his mother in New York City. Now, my two youngest sons are the ones that play basketball. One is Matthew Lee. He's in Ohio right now uh, in 11th grade in high school there. And my littlest one, he's 11 here, uh, Brandon Lee. And both of them are pretty good players. They love basketball because Puerto Rico, even though they don't have uh, the, the amount of players in the NBA or even Division One, Puerto Rico is one of the places that play the most basketball of any place in the world. They start very young. They have a lot of leagues. You know, we have basketballs in the office. We have basketball in the cars. And we have basketballs at home. So they, they almost didn't have a choice whether they were going to be basketball players or not. <laughs> has has the, the, the storm and the hurricanes put a dent in that and the gyms and the plane and that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's a big dent because, I, I mean, this is the first time I've talked basketball in about more than two weeks, mm. which is rare. So <laughs> right now nothing is happening as far as basketball on the island, and I know that's a tough that's a tough situation for the kids, you know. My son, he just started going back to school on Wednesday, and a lot of kids were out of school for about three weeks. So, you know, that's that's probably driving them crazy and driving the parents crazy. A lot of the gyms have been uh, damaged. My son, he plays at the YMCA in San Juan, and I have posted on my page a couple of uh, photos with, with the trees that have fallen on the, on the YMCA that that damaged the roof. But that's the situation on many of the, the basketball courts here in Puerto Rico. Hey, well, listen, Butch, I know you've got to run, man. And uh, 
get, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I know there's, uh, it's just, you know, 24 hour job to just to help bring the island back. So before we close out, though, if, if any of the listeners want to support you and your effort, what should they do? That's going to be GoFundMe.com and then Butchley Hurricane. That'll steer you to it. And uh, hopefully we can get a little more support and, and help me do uh, a little better job of what I'm trying to do for the community here in, in Puerto Rico. Hey, well, thank you so much, man. Our, our guest has been uh, the great Alfred Butchley, high school legend, a college All-American, and now uh, entrepreneur and now a humanitarian. All right. Thank you. And now, before we close out the show, we'll leave you with a couple things to consider. I don't know about the rest of you, but my entire high school experience can be summed up in two words. Unnecessary stress. Stressing about grades, sports, girls, popularity, prom, parties, friends, extracurriculars, you name it. Now, for one second, put yourself in the shoes of a 16-year-old basketball phenom with his own signature shoe, 2.7 million followers on Instagram, and a new Lamborghini. Wouldn't your ego go through the roof? I know mine would. I say all this to say, there's no reason to criticize LeVar Ball for choosing to homeschool LaMelo. LeVar wants his sons to be the greatest basketball players that ever lived. That's pretty difficult to accomplish if you're stressing over matching your tux with your prom date's dress. LeVar, however, is not the first to do this. Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena, homeschooled his two daughters en route to their domination of the tennis world. So consider this. Before calling LeVar crazy, do your homework, because there is a method to his madness. In August of 2016, Cam Newton, the quarterback for the Carolina Panthers, made the incredible assertion that America is beyond racism. Last week, Newton found himself in hot water once again when he responded to a female reporter's question about pass receiving by saying, quote, it's funny to hear a woman talk about routes, end quote. Newton was immediately attacked by feminists as being sexist. Turns out that the reporter, Jordan Rodriguez, had some skeletons in her racial closet as well. And by the end of the week, Rodriguez was apologizing for insensitive and borderline racist tweets that she had made in 2012. I guess if there's a moral to this story, it's that in this breathless, nonstop social media world that compels everyone from presidents to journalists, let's contain our rage, let's contain our anger, and for civility's sake, let's think before we tweet. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Matthewson. Tony Chow and Martin Onable are in the control room. Special thanks to David Cummings. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as All Day, What Are Those, and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everybody.